Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. Good stuff. Okay, great to see you. Um, I have written a book. It's become a little bit of a joke about me writing a book, but to be honest with you, I want to get serious about it for a minute. I wrote a book about six years ago called Diamond Geezers, and uh, it was written for men. There's about um, 12, well, actually, altogether about 15,000 copies of that ended up being printed, and over 10,000 were totally given away to people in prisons. I keep getting letters all the time off guys in prisons and in armed forces who read that book, given their lives to Jesus, and are following him as a result of that, which is just incredibly wonderful. And then I got the opportunity to get published by Lion Hudson's, who's probably one of the biggest uh, Christian publishers. And they've done a, a great deal at helping me to be able to get this book even better. I'm six years on from the first one. I believe this is 10 times the book. I think it is, uh, you know, I'm not just saying, I'm, I, I was reading through it myself and thinking, wow, I can't believe I wrote that. I forgot that bit. And it's good. And the reason I'm saying that is I want you to buy it. I want you to buy it, especially if you're a man in this church. I don't get any money from it, so it's not like because it will help me to go to the Bahamas. I want you to buy it for you because I've written it for you because I want you to be a great disciple of Jesus Christ and because this looks at... the If, if men got these things sorted, we'd get the world sorted. If we got these issues with regard to looking after our bodies better, with regard to how we cope with families, how we, how we deal with our finances, uh, sorting out relationships in our families and, and thinking about our earthly fathers, whether or not they were great or absent, something I'm going to look at later on in terms of family. If we, if, if these key strategic areas in your life, if we could get them dealt with now, it would make a massive difference, not just in our lives, but in the lives of countless generations from now on. That's why how much I believe in this book, and I want you to buy it. And it's 8 99 and again, I haven't, basically what we're going to do is a bit of a deal is, that was £4.50, the new sorted magazine. These are supposed to be 8 99 But if you get them today, both of them, for, you can get them for £10. And they're going to be available. Pete's going to be selling them out there. And I encourage you not just to buy it. Please read it. Most men don't read anything other than what they have to for work. If you can read, read it. Make time for reading it. Make time for doing the exercises that there are in it. It will make a massive difference for you. And if you're... If you care about a man and you want them to, be a, a, to become a Christian or to be a better one, buy them the book. I've only got so many of them. Um, they're available. We, we had, it was like an official launch yesterday at the Rough Diamonds Day, and it was really good. But I mean, one of the chapters in here is on family. And it just, you know, we kind of live in a messed up world, and where are we going to go to be able to get the, the, um, the, the, the wisdom that we need to be able to navigate our culture? And all these different pressures, you know, just taking that one facet of the diamond, which is, is family for a moment. I saw this post this week on the news where thousands of parents in Brighton were told that they had to identify their four-year-old child's gender by what their child wanted to identify with. After recently sending out a list of 25 different options, including trigender, gender fluid, Gender queer at the age of four. I don't get that. I don't have a clue what that means. To be honest with you, I don't think any four year old I know would know 
what that means. I don't know what, I don't think they would know certainly even what gender means. I don't think they could even know what the word means. And I know that a small, in fact, a very small percentage of people, one recent estimate puts it at 0.3% of the population have transgender struggles later in life. And I have really have compassion for that, for those people. I genuinely do. But to say, to be fair to that, that group of people, we're going to ask questions like that of four-year-old children seems to me to be making life a lot more complicated. I think parenting's hard enough without having to navigate that kind of stuff. And whether or not you have kids or, you know, where are you going to look for help to be able to navigate your way and make your decisions in this life? And particularly today, we're going to focus on family and on relationships. And of course, you're going to expect, because it's not in a cinema, but it's still kind of church, it's, it, that you, I'm going to go to the Bible and I'm, I'm going to say that, you know, we're going to look at what the Bible says about family and what the Bible says about, uh, about relationships, etc. And sometimes what we've done with the Bible straight away is we've gone right back to Adam and Eve. We've gone straight to that as like the ideal picture of a family and we've said that this is, this is what it should look like. But actually... That idyllic picture that people have when they look at what the Bible says, as I crack open the Bible, I find that actually, even though it looks like it's perfect in the beginning, that's because there's only two of them. And then before very long, when you start getting more people, it gets more complicated. So that idea that pe people have that the ideal is 2.4 children and everything, well, actually, the reason that they ended up having 2.4 children is because one of them killed one of the other ones. And then they had to have a replacement one for the one that was murdered. That was a messed up family right from the beginning. Does that encourage anybody today? <laughs> we have to be careful of making an idol of a particular rosy picture of an ideal nuclear family with 2.4 kids. Because it all looks lovely, but you don't have to look into any family very long and see that they're not perfect. When a, if you, so often I'll do weddings and, and the couple come and get married and we'll talk about people say, oh, aren't they just the perfect couple? When me and Zoe got married, people said, look at them, they're the perfect couple. Do you know what? They were wrong because nobody's perfect. There's no perfect couple because there's no perfect people and there are no perfect families. However, we might try and make it seem that everything's great in our family because that's the, the thing that we want, that's the, what we want to project out as much as possible in our pictures on Facebook and all of our statuses and everybody's smiling and don't look great and we've put the filter on it. <laughs> it's like the family who wanted to write a family history but they discovered that in their ancestry, great uncle George was actually a murderer and he'd been executed in the electric chair and they wanted to make it look good when they told the story so they did, did it tactfully and in the book of the family history it said great uncle George occupied the chair of applied electronics <laughs> at an important government institution he was attached to his position by the strongest of ties and his death came as a great shock Speaking of great shocks, did you recently hear Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, was surprised. He said it was a complete surprise to him to find out that his biological father was not the man that he thought about it was. He didn't think he, he thought it was this guy called Gavin Welby. That's what he believed all of his life. But then DNA tests proved that actually it was a guy called Anthony Montague Brown, who was Churchill's private secretary. And this is all as a result of some drunken, complicated 
mess when his mum was an alcoholic for many years and, and so was this guy. And, and, and what did he say about that? Because, you know, that kind of thing, if you discover something about your family of origin that you didn't want to know, that you didn't expect, and, and it isn't the story that you would have painted for yourself as being the perfect one, that couldn't really shock you, a person, can't it? And we have lots of people like that, don't we, in our society at the moment. Where do you go to to establish your identity and to be able to find out who you really are. They do all these things, don't they? Who, who do you think you are? You've seen those, uh, those genealogies and it's like people are looking into their past and as if that's going to help you to establish who you really are. Who do you think you are? Well, when he looked, he discovered he was not who he really thought he was because his dad was not who he thought his dad was. And that could have shaken a person completely. What did he say? He said this, As a result of my parents' addictions, my early life was messy. But although there are elements of sadness and even tragedy, this is a story of redemption and hope from a place of tumultuous difficulty and near despair in several lives. It is a testimony to the grace and power of Jesus Christ to liberate and redeem us, which is offered to every human being. My own experience is typical of many people. To find that one's father is other than imagined is not unusual. To be the child of families with great difficulties in relationships, with substance abuse or other matters is far too normal. Wow. Do you think that that kind of vulnerability and openness is going to draw more people's hearts to him and to Jesus Christ? I really think so. That being real. And then this bit is even more important. I think he says this. I know that I find who I am in Jesus Christ, not in genetics, and my identity in him never changes. He said, effectively, as a result of this news, nothing has changed. That's what he said. See, that's a man who is rooted and established in love, it says in Ephesians. That's what God wants for you and me. That's what the Apostle Paul prayed all of God's people would know, that you would be rooted and established no matter what your family looks like, no matter what it's been through, no matter what you're going through, that you would be able to stand rooted and established in the love of Christ and that you wouldn't have power together with all the saints to know how wide and how high and how deep and how strong is that love that is in Christ Jesus. Because when you've got that, no matter matter what else changes, nothing changes in here. You're never going to figure out who do you think you are until you know who you are in Jesus Christ. And when you do, everything changes. You know, they say you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. You've heard that kind of phrase before, haven't you? Well, only one person in history could choose his family. And that was Jesus Christ. And he chose, when he came from heaven, he could have come to, you know, the, he could have been Jesus Kardashian. <laughs> Couldn't he? He could have been, you know, he could have been some kind of, that's even freakier. He could have been like, um, you know, some, some uh, royalty. He could have been, you know, it could have been Prince Jesus. After the 90th birthday, Jesus could have been in that family line. In any point in history, he could have come in. Who did he choose? He chose a single mother and a carpenter in a really poor place where for the rest of his life, as a result of that choice, the legitimacy of his birth would be continually doubted. So that years later on, when he was trying to be a preacher and trying to be a rabbi, these snidey religious people would come along and say, well, we don't even know who your father is. Who are you going to preach? How are you come you're preaching to us? If you're so great. All through his life, he had that. 
We don't even know, we picture it really nicely. We have the Christmas picture card. We've got Joseph and Mary all leaning over the crib and cooing and everything. But before very long, you don't hear anything about Joseph. And we obviously, we, I, if I'm writing the story, the way out the church history often writes the story is Joseph died young. I don't know, did he leave? After he got them out of Egypt and moved them into there and all that kind of stuff, there's just no evidence. No, we, we make up a good story for him because we're hopeful people. But I don't know whether it just ended up that Mary had to bring up Jesus and these other brothers and sisters alone, whether because she was widowed, which is hard enough, or because she was abandoned. But you know, all of that, all of that makes that family more like some of our families, doesn't it? More like we can connect with God. And then Jesus grows up and he says some radical things like, we all have the same dad. Whoever your dad, earthly dad was, whatever he was like, whether you even knew who he was or not, whether he was a bit weird and he's got a tattoo of you on his back. <laughs> We've all got the same dad. And so he said, when you pray, you can call God daddy. It's like a whole other level of relationship. Nobody had ever said that before. All these religious leaders had come along and said, you know, when you address God, use your these and thous, make sure you call him sovereign and, you know, start off with a good psalm and say hallelujah 10 times and face the right direction and do it all at the right times and all that. No, Jesus said, no, whenever you pray, just say, our daddy. And they were like, what? It's a whole other level of intimacy because we all have the same dad. And if you did end up having, if you had a bad relationship with your earthly father or parents, or even if you didn't know them, or, or maybe you knew them, and maybe you got rejection from them or whatever, don't go comparing around trying to look for some, don't feel bad about somebody else's perfect family. I remember my mum and dad, for, when I was about 12 or 13, they always seemed to be arguing. And I, I remember coming into the middle of one of their arguments about that time, and, and walking into the kitchen and saying, I'm leaving! And they were like, what? And they said, I'm going to go and live at Michael Holt's house. And they said, why are you going to live at Michael Holt's house? I said, because his mum makes really good cheese on toast. And they never argue. And my dad said, you're an idiot. They're not going to argue in front of you. Everybody argues. Different ways, different people. People all do that. I was like, oh, okay. Can have some cheese on toast. <laughs> Matthew 7 verse 9, Jesus said this because there's no perfect families. You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? I'm going to have to let you look at the picture and laugh before I read the Bible any further. <laughs> it's wrong, I know. There's no perfect families. Matthew 7, 9. You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you, imperfect, sinful people, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? You see the contrast. I'm, I'm grateful for a good family. Parents who did their best but nobody's perfect. No family is perfect. We all make mistakes. My kids would agree, I'm, I've not been the perfect dad. It's a good job I'm married to the perfect woman. Is she here? <laughs> There's no perfect family. So what, so what do we do? Give up? No. People talk about marriage and love and family. You talk about, you've heard about them all being redefined, haven't you, these days? But they act, actually, that's nothing new. Jesus redefined them. Jesus redefined love and family and marriage and all these different kind of things. 
Jesus already redefined them. We have good gifts from God that can become idols if we make them the biggest focus in our life. Things like sex and sexuality and marriage and parenting are all really good things, but they become idols if we end up trying to get our identity in them. If we let them come front and centre and we idolise them and we build everything around them, rather than worshipping Jesus and putting him at the centre of our lives and seeing him as the key for our lives. And out of everything that he said, and all I want to pull out as a principle today for you, whether today you are married, whether you are young, whether you are old, whether you're single, if you put Jesus Christ at the centre of your life and the centre of your relationships, if you see him at the centre of everything, of your dating, of your family, of your parenting, of your leading and influencing other people. If you do what he says, even if it seems to go against what everybody else says and what everybody else in our culture is doing, in the end, in the end, you'll look back on that and you'll think, I made the right decision. Every time. Put him in first place in love and in relationships and everything else will fall into place. Now, here's how radical Jesus got with that. I bet you've never heard anybody preach on this, and I'm probably not going to, because <laughs> I've got some other Bible stuff to get to. But why don't you read out loud with me Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, in comparison with his attitude towards God, he cannot be my disciple. Now that's the amplified version, which doesn't mean it's the louder version when you read it. It basically means it unpacks the picture in the words and helps you to be able to understand them. So what he's saying is, Jesus isn't saying, don't hear Jesus saying, you've got to hate your dad, you've got to hate your mum. What he's saying, it's like a Jewish idiom, it's a Jewish picture of, in comparison to this, this is like that. So it's like, John is not normally thought of as being a small man. However, compared with Daniel, he looked a bit, did he? <laughs> In the same way, <laughs> I don't even know why I started this. In comparison with the love that we have for Jesus, even the best love that you have for somebody else has to, has to kind of not compare. It's like, he's saying, if you love me, you love me most, it'll be the best. If you put me first, it will make a big difference in all of the other relationships too. And there's, I mean, that sounds all, all wonderful and loving and we can sing about it in the worship and I'll sing songs that say, I love you first, I'm putting you first. All these vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his love. I'll sing the words. What does it mean? I'll tell you an example of the kind of thing that it means. Ages back, somebody from Ivy contacted me and they said, I've got an opportunity. Um, we, we're going to move away as a family. We're going to live in this posh village in Cheshire. It's really, really nice. And, um, you know, it's like a promotion. It means that I can move out. And we've loved Ivy. And we love the kids' work. And the kids love the kids' work, especially. Really growing and all that kind of stuff. But, but now we're going to move away to this little comfy village. And, um, and we want your blessing. Would you give us your blessing? Now, the standard pastoral answer is going to be, of course, yes. Isn't it? That's it. I prayed about it and I thought, I can't just give you the standard pastoral answer because I know they told me where they were going and where they were going there's nothing going on for their kids and for Jesus there there's actually 
There's a tiny little church, a long, long drive away, where they're going to be bored to tears and leave. That's what's going on. It's like, I know. That, that, I mean, so I'm like, why? If, if you're saying that Jesus is number one for you and your family, if you're saying that, if you're not, fine, well, go and do it. But if you are saying that, then why would you deliberately make a choice that makes it seem as if having a big house, having your kids going to that school where they maybe win the athletics prize, maybe end up getting a really good qualification and going on to a better university, etc., to get a better job, all of those are like one, two, three, four, five. And we hope Jesus tags on the bottom somewhere and blesses us in all of our choices. Because what they're actually saying is all those things matter more and my kid could end up being the best connected, socially friendly, atheist around. And I'm like, make some choices that will at least, you can't decide for them, but you can help and you can do stuff that hinders. And I might get flack for saying that, but I've seen it. That's from practical. I've seen, I've seen parents make decisions that ultimately look like the most important thing is more money, a bit more education, bigger house, bigger car. And it's like, well, don't you want your kids to know Jesus? Because I thought when we dedicated them up here, that was what you were saying, above all else that you wanted for them. So don't make your kids your priority above God. It's better for your kids if you make Jesus your priority before them. Love people, but don't let anybody else be God except God. And if it ever comes to what they want versus what Jesus says, choose to do the God thing. Don't make getting married more important than who. You marry. Because in the end, that will show whether or not you love Jesus more than the songs that you sing in church. Jesus didn't stop there in redefining love and redefining family. Why don't you read Matthew 12 with me? As Jesus was speaking to the crowd, his mothers and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Someone told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside and they want to speak to you. Jesus asked, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Then he pointed to his disciples and said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my father, say that again, anyone who of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now look around the room. Jesus says, if you go and come and follow him, that person sitting on your left and on your right, they're your brothers and sisters now, if they're doing his will, if they've dedicated their lives to that. This isn't just some club that you decide to join and go in and go out of. And the fact is, there have been times I know in my life where my devotion to my Christian family has ended up leading to conflict with my natural family. I've had to make choices with regard to that in terms of what they would want versus what Jesus would want. It's ended up with them saying, well, it seems like you love him more. Actually, I do. But it's better for them. I'll come back to that in a minute. My auntie, when I became a Christian, she told my mum, don't worry, it's just a phase he's going through. Well, it's lasted 30 years. And I'm not through the phase yet. I don't intend to come out of the phase anytime soon. Who is Jesus' family? Jesus says it's those who do what he says. So my question, are you in his family? Are you doing what he says? Bit less, <laughs> bit less certainty on number two there. Okay. 
See, I'm talking about in relationships too. Is this, so it's not just about what I think or what I feel or what I want to do. I haven't, see, in, you could come to me and people will with all kinds of questions about relationships and even with regard to sexual stuff and choices people make. I'd say this to anybody so you know not to come and ask me. If you say you're a Christian and you ever come to me a question like that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and look in the Bible with you for what I think God says you should do. And then I'll encourage you to do what he says. Is that all right? Because I can't make up everybody's answer for them. and I don't want to. But what I want is, if Jesus is Lord, he redefines everything. He redefines love and he redefines family. And on the cross, as Jesus hung between life and death, even in those final moments, Jesus was redefining love and family. Read this with me. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, dear woman, that's a term of affection, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, that's his best friend, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Jesus is on the cross. This series about crossroads. It's all these different people looking at the cross in different ways. Jesus is hanging there on the cross, paying the full price for the sin of the world. Suffering one of the most painful experiences anybody could ever go through. He's already been tortured. His back is in shreds from the whip. Soldiers have taken a crown of thorns and knocked it on his head with a stick to keep it in place. He's suffered an incredible loss of blood. He's thirsty. He's suffocating because that's what crucifixion did. It, it forced you to be unable to breathe on the cross. He's, he's spiked onto a filthy, blood-stained cross from all the other people who've been killed on it before him. And what's he thinking? He's thinking about them. He's thinking about his best mate, John, and how much this is going to hurt him. And he's thinking about his mum. And he's like... I need a plan to help work out their relationships. I need, to, I, need to, I need to think about them and what's going to happen. So he comes up with a crazy at that time cross-cultural thing would be that his best, man would, his best mate would move in with his mum. But he thinks that's going to work, that's going to be best. So he says, why don't you do that? Now, my question for this is, if at that moment, in all that pain, when, Jesus, when anybody would be forgiven for thinking most about themselves, Jesus was thinking about them, do you think he cares enough about you to be able to help you with your choices with regard to relationships? Do you think he's got enough compassion, enough wisdom to be able to help you with those, those kind of messes that we're getting? Yes. Great. He's concerned at that moment for them. So will you trust him with your family and your future? Will you be his disciple and do what he says? I've told this story before. Some of you will have heard it. When I was, I was kind of going out with Zoe a little bit, I'd become a Christian sort of by sticking my hand up, which in a minute we'll invite people to do. I'm going to invite people to put up a hand and say, I want to follow Jesus and I'll put him at the centre of my life. I'm going to invite you to do that in a minute. I'd done that in something, but Zoe still wasn't sure whether it had changed in my heart. She was asking all kinds of questions about that and you know, giving me a Bible and making me read it and things. And, uh, and so she said to me one time, I'm kind of in the, well, what about marriage then? What do you think about marriage? You know, uh, just in a sort of casual way, throwing it in. You know, I bet you wouldn't marry some, anybody, you know, just anybody, would you? I bet you wouldn't kind of marry, you know, anybody like me, for instance, or, you know, anything like that. And here's what she said, and I still remember exactly where we were standing when she said it, but she said to me, I would never marry anybody who didn't love Jesus more than they loved me. I was like, What? I don't get that. 
Because I, I, I've become a Christian now. I like Jesus a lot. And, but I can't see him and I can see you and you're gorgeous. So how can I love him more than you? But you know what? She was right. Because the fact that I love Jesus best means I've been able to love her way, way, way better. If you're going to love other people better, love Jesus best. Whenever in my life I have made that decision, because it wasn't just a one-off, whenever I've made that choice in my relationships, I have been a way better dad, dad, a way wiser father, a kinder granddad, a more faithful friend, a miles more effective leader than I ever could have been without putting Jesus Christ in that central place, and you will too. You will love other people better if you love Jesus more and more and love him best and put him first in your life. I was talking to a lady the other day. She came, she just started recently coming to Ivy. I didn't even know her, but she had a badge on at this conference we did and Ivy. And I was like, oh, you come to Ivy, great. Told me a story. She moved from down south. She came up really looking at a relationship from Manchester. She came to meet up with this guy. Was that going to be the right relationship? She moved everything to move up here. Found herself in this new city and then the relationship didn't work out with this guy. It wasn't right. She was like, well, what am I doing here? So she did what everybody did, went on Google and started thinking about questions and relationships and thinking about God. She, years and years ago, used to go to church, but hasn't for such a long time. She decided, okay, I'll, I'll do that. She ended up finding this church called Ivy. She, she said, I watched all, I've listened to all your talks. I've watched the AGM. I'm like, everything. And through that, God reached out to me and I started coming along to Ivy and, and everything is amazing. And I've given my life to Jesus and it's fantastic. And she goes to Ivy Sharston. You know what happened? She's put Jesus in the right place in her life. And everything else, it might be tough at times, but everything else falls into place around that. You get that most important place sorted out. And if you've not done it, you can do it today. You know the saying, blood is thicker than water. Well, there's even something stronger than the blood of family. And it's the love of Jesus Christ. Because... Just if I had time to read, I'd read the rest of the reading. But it says that, that when they came to Jesus and he was dead on the cross after he'd spoken these words, they came and the soldier stuck a spear into his side to, to make sure, to check that he was dead. And he said, blood and water flowed out from his side. And they didn't know what that means. But actually, some people believe what it means is that Jesus literally died of a broken heart. That, that was a ruptured heart cavity, which as a result of the separation of watery serum from the clotted blood in the pericardium it, it, it looked like blood it looked like water was pouring out of it together so you know Jesus died of a broken heart and we hear about broken families we hear about broken lives we hear about broken relationships broken people broken homes Jesus died of a broken heart to fix a broken world he'll do it for you today and in a moment I'm going to invite you to um, to say if you want that yes Lord I want that and to put up a hand like that. And the love of Jesus Christ will come and will meet you. The love that God the Father has for you will refather you if you need that. The love that he has for you will save you. It's immeasurably above and beyond even the most wonderful of human loves that you could ever find. They're just a shadow in comparison with this love. So that's my invitation now. I'm going to ask you to be brave so I can put a book in your hand. I'd like you to stick up a hand so I can see you and I can pray for you. Even there's one person here needs to do that today. Please put up a hand so I can see it. Right at the back there, good man. Anybody else? Great. Somebody at the back row, love that. Fantastic. Anybody else? 
saying, I need Jesus to come and, and sort this stuff out in my life. I'm going to put him first and foremost in all my relationships. Brilliant. I said, like, for the first time. If you know you need to do that, if you know that actually Jesus kind of went to second, third, fourth, or fifth, and you've been pursuing something other than him and making that your, your joy, and you know that and you want to turn from that and put him back in, come back to that first love. If that's you, could you stand so I can pray for you? Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you, you love these guys. Thank you that you've drawn them with your love. Thank you that the Bible says we love because you first loved us. So I pray that you come to them now with your love. Envelop them and wrap them up. That person who's just doing this for the first time, let them know your love which surpasses knowledge. Fill in every part of their heart, Lord, and give them your wisdom and your guidance and your strength. Thank you that you are so for them. Lord, thank you for every loving person that you've ever sent into their lives as a picture of your love. Thank you for every time when anybody's hurt them that you've come alongside them and, and you've enfolded them in your love and you've helped them through that and you've comforted them and you've carried them through times of loss and times of hurt. So the good things came from you and the bad times you were helping with. So we bless you. You're a good, good father. May the Lord bless you. May he fill you with his grace and power. And may you know that love that surpasses all knowledge as the rest of us stand and worship. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, go to ivychurch.org forward slash media.